This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is 321. The Buck Sexton Show. Great to have you. As always appreciate you joining today, as I do every day. Um, one of these days where it's sort of, you know, pick what you want from the news cycle. Not a lot of, uh, of big breaking news. So I like that because it allows us to sort of dive a little deeper into some issues of note. At least issues, uh, issues of note as I see them. Uh, this won't get as much attention in the media as I think it should, um, but we'll spend some time on it now. You have this uh, book that's out now, Enhanced Interrogation, Inside the Minds and Motives of the Islamic Terrorists Trying to Destroy America, in which the author, uh, James Mitchell, talks about his role in the Enhanced, uh, enhanced Interrogation program. Um, so uh, he's somebody who's discussing how all of this worked and what the truth uh what the truth was behind eit enhanced interrogation and of course if you go on the huffington post they already are talking about how this is like a torture apologist memoir and and all this other stuff Um, but the most interesting part of the memoir i mean I, i don't actually want to get into today at least we can another time the merits the pluses and minuses of waterboarding per se interesting that of course they call it torture even though it is something that we do in the u.s military uh, or is done in the u.s military in Sears school and that's you would think that we wouldn't torture our own troops right so survival evasion resistance and escape program seer s-e-r-e as many of you know um, there has been waterboarding done in that for quite some time uh, as i believe is discussed in the book in this most recent uh, addition to the back and forth, the debate over whether this should be done or not. Uh, There's some pretty uh, horrific stuff in here when you get into the mind of uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, generally known inside counterterrorism circles simply as KSM. And uh, KSM was the mastermind of 9-11, and he was, many people say, sort of the, the operational 
heart and soul of al-Qaeda. If bin Laden was sort of the figurehead and the the big idea guy, if you will, KSM was his right hand, the sort of implementor, the individual who sat around really plotting the specifics of a catastrophe, mayhem, and mass murder. Um, and what's interesting in the memo, well, there's a lot of stuff in the memo that's interesting. For one, he goes into the his description, and this is all in the Washington Post, uh, I believe yesterday, he goes into his description of the beheading of Wall Street Journal reporter Daniel Pearl. And in the book, it says that when he was asked, when KSM was asked whether this was hard to do, meaning was this something that as a human being, it's difficult for you to take a completely defenseless and innocent person and saw his head off with a sharp knife. Uh, KSM replied, oh, no, no problem. I had very sharp knives, just like slaughtering sheep with, without missing a beat. So the answer quite clearly is no. He had no problem with the inhumanity of this or the inhumane nature of what he did. And this is true, of course, of the various senior al-Qaeda figures. And, of course, if you look at ISIS figures as well, part of what it means to be a jihadist, part of what it means to uh, subscribe to this ideology is that you have to embrace a complete uh, dehumanization of all others. Um, and there's no basic humanity left outside of the confined circle of, I guess, the jihadist's family and fellow true believers. But everybody else is uh, a, an animal fit for slaughter, uh, as KSM says, just like slaughtering sheep. So they go into even more here, but what, was, what really caught my eye and I, I think it's something, uh, given what the discussion has been like recently about U.S. foreign policy abroad and what our expectations are for a Trump administration, uh, this is worth revisiting. Um, and this is the aspect of KS, the aspect of the book that deals with KSM's uh, analysis, if you will, of the U.S. response to 9-11. It has become a point of received wisdom now. I mean, you get very few people will go to any lengths to try to debate uh, the other side of this, or at least you, you rarely hear the other side of this debate, that uh, we responded, we over-responded to 9-11. We over-responded certainly with the war in Iraq, but also even with the uh, ousting of the Taliban and then effort to rebuild and stabilize Afghanistan and our various counterterrorism operations all over the world, that this was an overreaction and that we were playing right into the jihadist hands. This is something that you'll hear, that, that they wanted to bring us into a quagmire, essentially uh, the silly Americans once again outwitted by the jihadists. And we did exactly what they wanted us to do after 9-11, which was invade Muslim lands and inflame the Muslim world against us and and this is now the narrative. This is the dominant narrative. And you'll hear all sorts of experts who will say this. I, I, I've, I mean, among many others, always contested that the, the war in Afghanistan, I mean, Ron Paul voted for the war in Afghanistan, even leftist, uh, leftist Democrats in many cases voted for the war in Afghanistan. I, I don't see how you can argue that we had any choice but to go after the Taliban. And uh, you could discuss how successful we were in that in the sense that we really eradicated the Taliban, yes, but also pushed them across the border and therefore allowed the virus to seek a, uh, a sort of petri dish in which it could 
continue to exist only to reinfect the host later. And we are still in that phase, by the way, of reinfection of the host with the Taliban in Afghanistan. Um, And they have not yet gotten to the point they were before, but they are seeking to do exactly that, where they run the country. Where does the Islamic emirate of Afghanistan uh, under jihadist rule on the Taliban would be uh, calling all the shots? Um, They think that that's but a few years away. And if you look at the most recent reports about control in the country, where the government has control and where the government does not, sure, the government out of Kabul has major cities in hand, but the moment you step out into the countryside, you're in in many cases in Taliban territory. I think about 30 or 40 percent of the country is the estimate that you have right now of straight up Taliban control. But KSM, uh, back to this book, this memoir, which, of course, is going to be picked apart. And people are going to say that this is merely somebody who's trying to assuage his conscience or this is somebody who's uh, writing a book to defend the indefensible. And, and I've already looked on some of the leftist sites and they're all so, you know, the, the idea that we would do to terrorists like KSM who brag about beheading, for example, Daniel Poirot, who brag about 9-11, who brag about murdering innocent people, destroying families, destroying lives by the thousands, uh, that we would do to them to get critical information what is done as a, in training for our own military. Uh, that never seems to occur to them that there's a difference between torture. We we would not amputate the hand of a U.S. service member in training, right? That's torture. We would not tie electrodes to certain areas of a U.S. service member. That's that's torture. Waterboarding, is it torture? Well, it does seem to be. Enhanced interrogation does seem to be a an accurate description of it if you can't call it torture, which... There seems to be this, and now I am, I'm sorry, I'm getting into this gray area, the, the back and forth on you know what, what we should call it, what we shouldn't. The Geneva Conventions, where does it fall on that? Keep in mind, the Geneva Conventions also assume that people will be fighting in uniform for nation states. And so whether, whether we're going to apply Geneva Convention rules to uh, terrorists captured out of uniform who kill civilians as their primary objective, well, another part of this debate. But the most interesting thing, I'm sorry, I, this is obviously something that I wouldn't would uh, want to talk to you about for quite some time because it's really revisiting once again the discussion over the Bush administration and its response to the war on terror. And I was in the CIA's counterterrorism center uh, during the Bush administration, as well as the Office of Iraq Analysis um, and even the Office of uh, Afghanistan Analysis. So uh, I had a particular view of these things then. And when you see the way that this, at least this one author, as described in this book, and we're going to try to get him on the show if we can, although I'm sure he's inundated with requests right now. Um, one thing that he says is that, uh, let me just read to you this, um, this section uh, from the Washington Post. The Islamic State wants to do the. Oh, sorry. Uh, the U.S. response today, some on both the left and the right argue that Al Qaeda wanted to draw us into a quagmire in Afghanistan. And now the Islamic State wants to do the same in Iraq and Syria. KSM said this is dead wrong. Far from trying to draw us in, KSM, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, operational planner for al-Qaeda, said that al-Qaeda expected the United States to respond to 9-11 as we had the 1983 bombing of the Marine barracks in Beirut. When KSM told Mitchell the United States, quote, turned tail and ran, he also said he thought we would treat 9-11 as a law enforcement matter, just as we had the bombings of the U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania and the USS Cole in Yemen. 
arresting some operatives and firing a few missiles into empty tents, but otherwise leaving him free to plan the next attack. This is from the book. Then he looked at me and said, how was I supposed to know that cowboy George Bush would announce he wanted us dead or alive and then and then invade Afghanistan to hunt us down? Uh, so KSM writes that if the said that if the United States had treated 9-11 like a law enforcement matter, he would have had time to launch a second wave of attacks. He was not able to do so because he was stunned by the ferocity and swiftness of George W. Bush's response. So now if you look at this and you analyze this and you start to pull it apart, you say to yourself, hold on a second. What makes what actually from the perspective of our enemies makes more sense? We shouldn't assume that they are omniscient. And that's something that I think oftentimes in this country, especially when you're talking about the blame America first left. Everything we do is a bad idea, right? Everything we do is playing into the terrorist hands. Everything we do creates more terrorism. This is a common theme. You'll hear this countless times from people who think themselves smart but are actually idiots. Uh, you know, we, we're by fighting terrorism, we're creating more terrorism. This is the dynamic. This is the it's almost meme like that's out there. And people constantly share this idea. Uh, why would Al Qaeda? Why would Al Qaeda think that we would invade even in response to a massive a terrorist attack on our soil when we had had previous terrorist attacks and done very little. Why would they assume that after, for example, the Marine, the bombing of Marine Barracks in 1983, when we lost uh, approximately 300 uh, U.S. service members, I forget the exact number, it was 287, I think, but I have to check on the number. Uh, but we lost hundreds in one strike, one massive suicide blast. Uh, why? And, and we then pulled out, right? The U.S., mission to try to help stabilize Beirut and Lebanon was ended in one horrific, uh, bloody incident. Uh, we left. And this was under Reagan, keep in mind. Reagan, not one to shy from a fight, not one thought of as being uh, wimpy on foreign policy. So if this is true, isn't it interesting that the Bush administration is still so reviled, mostly for, for Iraq, but even said to be, uh, even said to be at fault for what it did in Afghanistan, when now we've got, if, if and you could say that this guy is lying, and I'm sure the left is going to say this, but what makes more sense? That the response from the Bush administration, um, the response from the Bush administration was more robust than expected by our enemies, given the recent history of terrorist attacks, and that it threw them off balance, and that it prevented another wave of massive terrorist attacks on U.S. soil, or that they could see everything coming, they're a bunch of geniuses, they knew exactly what we do, and everything we do is wrong. Maybe it's time for a bit of a rethink on the history of our fight against terrorism, specifically the Bush administration's fight against terrorism. And oh, by the way, the Obama administration's adoption of many of the key tools and strategies used by the Bush administration to prosecute that war on terror. This is a memoir that I'll be reading and hopefully we'll have the author on. But this is a debate. This is a discussion about the war on terror and about what the Bush administration did. It's not over. And I think we'll be finding out even more information in the uh, months ahead. All right, team, we'll be uh, in a break. Be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Dispensing the truth. This is Buck Sexton. On the Blaze Radio Network. 
You know, I think one of the reasons, Team Y, it's uh, particularly worthwhile for us to spend some time, uh, we as in you and me and the team, and we as in uh, Americans, uh, looking at what the truth of the war on terror has been is we now have a new administration that's going to have a very different approach and you'd hope that it's able to apply what I was going to say we call the intel community but I think this is a more a phrase in common usage lessons learned to everything that's gone on I, I think we would like to we'd like to think that we could see what's been done in the past and have an understanding of what that would mean uh, in the future for our efforts to root out jihadism which until China actually decides it wants to go to you know war with us in maybe 15 or 20 years, who knows? And hopefully that never happens, by the way. Um, but in the meantime, jihadism is our most imminent uh, geostrategic threat. Uh, Russian provocation and, and Russian expansionism is up there as well. But look, the Russians aren't about to try to ram 20 airliners into U.S. skyscrapers or something, right? I mean, if, if al-Qaeda could do that tomorrow, they would. Same with the Islamic State. And they're still certainly considering ways to, to do that, to go about exactly that. So um, I, I think the lessons learned component is very is, is essential. And also, and this is something we'll be talking about more, if not this week, certainly next week, too. The way the Obama administration has handled things, uh, I think the public has a somewhat rosier view of it than we should uh, considering that, one, there have been a lot of mass casualty attacks in Europe, and we've had a, a few, uh, we've had a bunch of mass casualty attacks on U.S. soil from supposedly lone wolves. Although, when we look at this more closely, uh, the, the truth is that oftentimes what are reported as lone wolves, we find out they've been in contact with ISIS directly. This is more common than I think is often realized. Uh, the I was talking yesterday about how there's sort of the narrative of delay. Usually the way it works is at first it's we don't know the motive, and then it's, okay, maybe there's some kind of a motive dealing with jihad, but let's not get crazy and, and jump to conclusions too fast. And then it's, well, this is a, somebody who acted on his own, and there's other things we should consider, and, you know, he was picked last for dodgeball or whatever. And maybe a few weeks after that, there'll be some, you know, page C... 15 of the newspaper story somewhere about, yeah, it turns out this guy was actually talking to ISIS in an encrypted chat room or using an encrypted app to speak directly to ISIS recruiters. And so that's been going on at a, at a rate under the Obama administration that is much greater than what we saw under the Bush administration. Right. Yes. Bush got hit with 9-11. Anybody who thinks that Bush could have prevented 9-11 in a pre-9-11 environment, meaning he could have taken the security precautions necessary to stop al-Qaeda, which did have – I know this is a much broader discussion. I'm trying to fit it into a pretty tight time frame here. But without nine, without being on a, on a sort of war footing to take on the jihadists, it was just a question of when. We were going to get hit and we were going to get hit badly. Obama has had the benefit of coming into office knowing that we were at war with jihadists and didn't take – uh, certain actions that I think when you look at it in retrospect now could have prevented, well, certainly the rise of ISIS and then also the expansion of ISIS into neighboring countries and even around the world. I mean, ISIS stretches as far as there's an ISIS affiliate in the Philippines, an ISIS affiliate in Afghanistan and Pakistan. So the Obama administration takes this position that they've handled all this very well, but there's a lot of cleaning up that needs to be done. 
And we have suffered through a, a number of, of horrific terrorist attacks, and whether they were directed by guys in caves in Pakistan and Afghanistan or they were just individuals who decided on their own to do it. Uh, we are in the midst of a fight still against the Islamic State. That's an ideological fight. And identifying the enemy, as we've discussed many times here, is certainly a core component of all that. But also understanding what actions could be taken in the future to prevent, say, the seizure of major cities by a terrorist army, as with the Islamic State, um, the besieged status of Aleppo, the 500,000 killed in Syria, the massive Syrian refugee problem that has changed European politics, that has allowed Russia a huge foothold in the Middle East. I mean, there's a very different legacy of Obama's counterterrorism war than the media wants you to believe, and it's something we're going to continue to discuss here on the show. 888-900-3393. Team, we'll be back with much more. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. All right, everybody, it's time for a little spy time. Agent, you are joining a clandestine meeting in progress. You will now be read into sensitive programs in real time. Do not communicate this information with any other assets in the field. This is Spy Time. John Schindler, National Security Columnist for the New York Observer, joins us now. He is at 20 Committee on Twitter, and his latest piece is It's Almost Too Late to Get Serious About Jihadism. John, great to have you as always. Great to be here, as always, Buck. So uh, your reactions to the latest on Ohio State's campus are what, sir? Well, I just think, how really, how many of these incidents have to happen before we can start getting serious about the nature of this threat? We've been very, very lucky. That sounds like a weird thing to say when 11 people get stabbed or run over with a car. But yet again, no one died. Our self-starting jihadists in the United States are nowhere near as competent as they are in Europe, where they can kill dozens of people at a time. Uh, I just don't want us to get to the point where, through a sort of Darwinian process, our homegrown jihadists get as competent at killing as they are in Europe. We need to address this before we get to that point. Now, before we get into the addressing it, by the way, I just want to say it seems as though the sort of social justice left, and including 
people that really jump to conclusions quickly, like Tim Kaine. Jumping to conclusions on gun violence, totally okay. On the perpetrator, not okay. Tim Kaine thought this was a school shooting. Uh, you know, the would-be vice president of the United States had the Democrats won. Uh, social justice warriors all over the Internet are openly or are willing to openly express their disappointment that this isn't a guy running around yelling, make America great again, stabbing people. I mean, they really care more about the narrative than they do about trying to keep everybody safe across the board. And that's what makes me not very optimistic, I've got to be honest with you. When Tim Kaine, who you know could have easily become our next vice president, uh, is you know, hitting the usual gun, gun, gun mantra, and the social justice warrior left, which, let's make no mistake, has deep deep roots into, the, into today's Democratic Party, um, is out there openly gnashing their teeth that this wasn't the sort of redneck white guy inspired by Trump's hate terrorists. They had so hoped it was, and they were openly stating this on social media. This is a shocking place we're in where you're sort of rooting for the perpetrator of what looked like a mass killing event. Fortunately, it was just a mass wounding event. Uh, you're, you're sort of rooting for that person to be of a certain ethnicity or religion. That's really pretty sick stuff. Let's, let's get that out there. The, the, that does not make me optimistic we're going to have any serious discussion about this, although who knows, President Trump may force us to have that discussion. What do you think a serious discussion about this sounds like, John? If you were the one that was sitting down with, with President Trump, you know, given that it's, isn't, it's kind of funny every time I say it, President Trump. Yeah, I, I know. I'm, I'm still adjusting, too. Oh, yeah, yeah I'm, getting, I'm getting used to this or trying to get used to this. But if you sat down with, with our, our president-elect, soon-to-be president, and got to discuss this issue with him, I mean, look, I, I think he has his instincts on this are actually better than Hillary Clinton's. I think this is the one place on national security where despite a lack of knowledge, he has, he does have better judgment. I mean, Hillary Clinton, because she has to placate the social justice left was saying, although she did start to say radical Islamic terror because she knew that the country, the country actually doesn't want to hear about how this has nothing to do with Islam. You know, Obama may get away with saying stuff like that, but Hillary knew that she couldn't. And I, I think that Trump has the right instincts, but if he needs the right policies or the right, uh, to take the right, the right actions in the Oval Office, what do those look like? Well, I, as you said, Trump is at least starting down the right road here, and he, like so many of his thoughts, it needs refinement, it needs definition of what policy would look like. And let me say, you've got folks in his national security inner circle, for instance, Mike Flynn, who's basically calling for a war in Islam, and that's not helpful either. But calling the enemy what he is, these are jihadists, these are radical Islamists, people who want to use violence to you know, lead to an Islamic takeover of society as a political project. We need to call that what it is. Um, now, we also need to define that a little bit, which is, you know, why are we importing people from places like Somalia? So let me make clear, Somalia is probably the most backward, retrograde, poorest parts, part of the Muslim world. It's also one of the most jihad, you know, infected parts. I, I also uh, can I just add in, John, real quick, uh, that a, yeah. friend, a, a friend of mine who had worked with the United Nations and had been, name a horrible country, and he had been, I mean, everything. He had been, he had been to Haiti. He had been to North Korea. He had right. been to Somalia. He had been all over West Africa. Name the poorest country in the world. He said that for him, nothing compared to Somalia in terms of, of just right. desperation and violence. That's right. And look, the Muslim world, this is one and a half billion people. It's a huge part of the planet. Everything is not the same. There are lots of parts of the Muslim world where extremism is kept in check by the government, and it's not a big problem. And if you brought 100 people in as immigrants or refugees in the United States from those countries, maybe one at most would be a problem. If you're bringing in Somalis, the percentage that's going to be a problem is not 1%, frankly. As we see this, wherever there are Somali communities, we've had hundreds of Somalis 
go back from the United States and Canada to go back to the motherland to wage jihad there in recent years. Uh, so, I mean, this, do we want to bring in people from, frankly, the worst parts of the Muslim world, where extremism has deep roots and, it, and they are violence-prone and their societies are train wrecks? Are those people we want to bring in or not? And that's really the question we have to ask. Let's, let's take Muslim or not Muslim off the table because it's much more complicated than that. And let's talk about parts of the Muslim world that are mired in violence and dysfunction and jihadism and really ask ourselves, is it wise to bring them into our country? As I tell everyone who listens, America has plenty of homegrown crazies born here, natives born citizens. Do we really need to import more crazies, Muslim or not? And, and I, that's I think, the question we really need to have. I think that also it, it became clear over the course of the campaign that even saying you you weren't even allowed to have the open discussion. And and John, I mean, you've been very clear and very open about your feelings about Trump and his foreign policy knowledge or, or rather lack thereof. But the other side of this has always been or, or the other side when you when you add sort of Clinton, and the Democrats, I know Clinton doesn't matter as much now, but that Democrat mindset is that there was this pre just like they, they will say things like, well, there's no such thing as voter fraud. And they'll say this, right. and then you'll point out, no, actually, of course, people go to jail for it. Then that's just a, a false statement. They'll also say um, there's ne- there's no problem with refugees and terrorism of, of any kind, and generally speaking, and that's also not true. So we should at least be able to have a discussion about, look, if we're going to bring in ten thousand refugees from Syria, let's say, and five of them are going to radicalize and try to kill as many Americans as possible. The Amer- do the American people get to discuss this? And, and quite honestly, do they get to have a vote on it? You know, is, is this something that we're That's allowed exactly to right. tell people about right. that we want them to do or not do? Or are we just supposed to sit in silence while our betters, the Nancy Pelosi's and the Obama's and such of the world, make this decision for us? I have no problem if our elected representatives in Washington are willing to level with us and say, Bringing in refugees and immigrants from certain yucky parts of the world is so important. We're fully aware, since we can't really vet them very well, we're fully aware some of them are going to be bad people who will start trying to kill Americans. But that's the cost of doing business the way we want to do it. Just level with the American public and tell them that and see what they think and ask them, is this okay with you? On that vetting, um, on that vetting point, by the way, John, because that got yeah. a lot of attention too, and I feel like yeah. that's a that's a, you know even Trump at one point said there was extreme vetting, and I went on CNN and explained yeah. to everybody that extreme vetting is being on a first date in New York City, uh, which you know, <laughs> I, I thought that would catch on more than it than it did. But anyway, Damn, uh, but he talked about extreme. Yeah, thank you. He talked about extreme <laughs> vetting, and and I didn't think that uh, I, I I didn't think that this would be something that people or rather. It didn't seem to me that there was any way to explain what that would be because they're already, you know, the refugees show up. They say we don't have any documents. They say we can't prove right. where we're from. They say, so what do you do? I mean, they're not in biometric databases somewhere. They don't have databases. They don't have electricity in some of the places they're coming from. I mean, so what, how are we supposed to vet? What no one wants to hear. What no one wants to hear is the painful truth that you've hit on here, which is particularly people coming from really yucky parts of the world like Somalia it is functionally impossible to vet them in any meaningful sense because there aren't criminal records where they come from. You said there's no biometrics. These people are who they say they are. If it's a real passport, who knows? There are a lot of good fakes, and some countries specialize in having lots of fake passports from them. We really can't know. Again, talking about people coming from really messed up parts of the world, we can't really know who they are, much less what their background is. All we know is they're here, and they're either in or they're not. To be fair to the U.S. government, they already make a lot of attempts to vet immigrants and refugees. It's not the fault of the bureaucracy here. They know what their job is. The problem is it's almost impossible to do that job. And until we get into some big brother, you know, worldwide biometric database of everyone, which I hope never happens, we're not going to be able to. 
So the question then reverts back to how much of a chance are we willing to take? That's really what it comes down to. Yeah, and we should be able to have an open discussion about it. And Absolutely. I think that, and I think that the left uh, does a disservice, well, certainly to the country, but but even really undermines its credibility when they pretend that there's no that there's no risk from refugees when it's not even just refugees; it's refugees and also the first generation that follows the refugee that sometimes feels alienated, right. feels like there's you know no future for them in this country because uh, it's it's a it's a difficult thing to show up here with your parents having been through war, lost all their property, and have no actual ideological or emotional connection necessarily to America other than this place isn't going to, you know, I'm not going to be killed if I'm in this place. Well, that's clearly better. But that alone does not make for a good citizen. There are refugees who become phenomenal citizens. I mean, we've, we've just been dealing with uh, the realities of perhaps a new Cuba because of Castro's death. You look at all the patriotic Cubans that love this country more than a lot of Americans I know who were born in New York City love this country. <laughs> but you know, it, it, it's a case by case. It's individual by individual and it's country by country. And looking at it as a country by country issue to me doesn't seem to be an unfair way to take it. But we're no, told that that's xenophobia. Really we're told that xenophobia, Islamophobia, something, whatever. I said my premise is because let's take the Muslim thing out of it. You know, whether you're from a majority Muslim country or not is not the issue. It's what is the condition of that country? What is the extent of extremism? In that country, heck, we're getting to a point where there are Western European countries where the percentage of Muslims who have crazy views is far higher than in many actual Muslim countries. So it's not just, <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, you know, if you if you go to downtown Brussels, the percentage of Muslims there who have ex- extreme pro-jihad views is much higher than in a lot of Muslim cities I've been to and you've probably been to. So in majority Muslim countries, so it, it's not simple. But it's, what it really needs to boil down to is. What is the condition of the country this person is from? What is the extremist situation like there? And what is our ability to vet this person? And if, if it's a country like Somalia that has no governance, functionally speaking, it's impossible to vet refugees, immigrants from there. Oh, and by the way, um, there are a lot of jihadists coming back and forth from there. Maybe we need to level with the American public and say, this is just a risk we're going to have to run if you want to run that. One more but for you, John. Uh, a slightly different topic, but similar area. Yeah. The possible penetration of Germany's BFV, which everyone listening is kind of like their version of the FBI, it's their domestic intelligence service uh, and security service, by an Islamist. And this looks like it was a plot to bomb BFV headquarters. This is pretty intense stuff. This is really shocking stuff. This is really shocking stuff. The BFV, which is Germany's domestic intelligence agency, has focused very heavily on the Islamist threat inside Germany, which, of course, has been much exacerbated by recent flows of refugees. The BFV's estimate is there are just shy of 10,000 Salafists that is radical uh, you know, Islamist activists in the country, and one of them employees turns out to have been one of them. A uh, 51-year-old guy who was hired to monitor uh, the, the Islamist problem in the country and monitored it so well, he joined it. Uh, and as you said, he was apparently part of a plot to blow up BSV headquarters. I mean, this is really shocking stuff. Moles happen, but, you know, foreign intelligence services usually don't try and blow up your intel headquarters. Um, Islamists do. And this has shocked Germans quite badly, I think, uh, coming on, on the heels of, of a lot of these incidents of Germans waking up and realizing how many bad guys there are in their country. And one of them turns out to be in the belly of your domestic intelligence service. If I were German right now, I wouldn't be feeling very good about this. I have good friends in the BFE. I assure you they're not feeling very good about this. And the German public has to realize if the BFE can't even clean out its own ranks, you know, what are the odds of them assessing which refugees are good or bad? 
basically right. not. If they can't vet somebody um, for a highly sensitive right. government job, uh, vetting somebody right. who's showing up and saying, I've had a rough life, please save me, is even harder. It's impossible. And so this, this is a wake-up call of sorts. And let me tell you, this is going to happen to other Western intelligence agencies. And in fact, I suspect it already has. We just don't know it yet. They've been kept. Stories have not been discovered. They've been kept, they've been kept quiet. I know of a couple of cases in the U.S. intelligence community in recent years where there were – it wasn't quite this bad. People trying to you know, – to blow up their own building, but individuals who turned out to have some very odd ties were working in the intelligence community and were let go, which didn't make it in the media. So we shouldn't be, be feeling too good about ourselves. The, this, this German problem is actually a West, Western worldwide problem, uh, and we need to start getting serious about it. John Schindler is the national security columnist for The Observer. You can read his latest at Observer.com. Also follow him at 20 Committee on Twitter. John, great to have you, buddy. Talk soon. A pleasure as always. Team, back in a few. Buck Sexton, the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show only on the Blaze Radio Network. Team. Beets are a nutrition goldmine. They are rich in vitamins, minerals, electrolytes, and dietary nitrates. Dietary nitrates convert to nitric oxide in the body, which is why they are so good for you. It can help boost circulation and maintain healthy blood pressure levels. But eating beets is not necessarily an easy thing to do. You know what is easy? Super beets. You get the benefits of three whole beets in one teaspoon of super beets. You get no beet taste. Beet juice is rich in nitrates. It helps muscles use oxygen more efficiently. And Super Beets is, is better than regular beets and beet juice because it is specially grown and non-GMO. I feel confident offering this product to you. It is fantastic. It's my new favorite product. You can check it out yourself. Call 800-311-4367 or go to teambuckbeats.com. 800-311-437, teambuckbeats.com. You get a 30-day supply free. It comes with your first order and is backed by a money-back guarantee. Also receive a free book, Beat the Odds, and free shipping on your entire order. You'll love the results you feel with your first free canister, guaranteed, or your money back. 800-311-4367. TeamBuckBeats.com. Uh, I was thinking about something, by the way. Uh, I have to give credit to John, uh, one, of our, uh, one of our board ops, one of our producers here on the show, for the idea. Maybe you'll do this on Freestyle Friday. I want to I sort of challenge the audience to come up with, on the fly, and you know you'll know if I know right away or not whether this is true. We might do action movie quotes. Like you could call in and see if you can stump me, but it has to be a great quote from a great action movie. And we were thinking about doing this as sort of a gag on Friday. So you know, like in Predator, you'd be like, "What's the matter? CIA's got you pushing too many pencils." Something like that, you know. Um, which is obviously the scene where Schwarzenegger and Call Weathers sort of grasp hands, and you see that they're super jacked and yeah predator's awesome all right hour two talking politics coming up stay with me this is the buck sexton show the blaze radio network Spreading freedom across the nation. This is Three, two, one. The Buck Sexton Show. 
All right, team, welcome back to the Freedom Hub. We're joined now by the one and only Guy Benson. He is townhall.com's political editor. He's also a Fox News contributor and author of End of Discussion. Mr. Benson, good to have you, sir. Hello, Buck. Good to be back. Um, last night, there was a dinner with Trump and Romney. What was what was going on there, you think? What, what, was, what was the first course like? Well, no alcohol. We know that for sure. Uh, neither man drinks. So oh, I, I, I forgot about that. Good point. Yeah, so, I mean, a very sober conversation. Um, and I think, look, I was asked about all this Romney stuff uh, on Fox yesterday, and basically this is where I've settled. To me, either Mitt Romney is the frontrunner for this job, for the State Department, um, or Trump is really setting him up for a giant, embarrassing public snub as sort of punishment and retribution uh, for Romney's role as probably the most vocal and prominent uh, never-Trump Republican in the country. Um, it's, uh, to me, I really don't think there's much in between. Like, I can't, it's possible, I guess, but I really do feel like either Trump is very close to picking Romney or may, very, very serious about picking Romney, or this is sort of a, an exercise in vindictiveness. I was going to say, could looked, this be a giant, a giant exercise in trolling Mitt Romney publicly? Yes, I you know I, I don't think that that is unreasonable. I mean, keep in mind, people are like, oh, that's ridiculous. I'm like, excuse me. The day after Donald Trump won the Republican nomination for president, during an event where he was giving a speech thanking volunteers at the convention, he went back into the Ted Cruz JFK father scenario conspiracy weirdness uh, and ranted about it for a while. Like this guy, even when he's won. He has a vindictive streak. It's one of the things about his character that that worries me. But uh, again, I, I don't know. I'm I'm undecided on which direction this thing's headed. I I do believe, having talked to some folks and then you know read other people's reporting as well, it sounds like Mike Pence is like cheerleader number one for Mitt Romney as Secretary of State. Um, and I think you know Pence has gotten very close with Trump um, and is, is influencing Trump's thinking. So I guess I'm leaning a little bit in the direction of this is serious and he could gain Smith uh, to be Secretary of State. And frankly, if he did that, I don't think Mitt Romney is necessarily the most qualified person to be Secretary of State. I think he's smart and capable and, um, you know, a patriot and statesmanlike and would, you know, is respectable. He would do a, a fine job. I think he'd do a better but job if, than Kerry. I, I hear you, but... I think you do better. Oh, well, that, but, that, but that's, of course, my political proclivities coming out there, because you could argue Kerry's been on what Senate armed services or whatever he's been on in the Senate. Go ahead, Guy. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, no problem. Um, but I do think it would say something good about Trump if he were to pick Romney uh, for secretary of state. It would it would send a signal that, look, there was no one in America who was harsher and more consistently negative about Donald Trump on the Republican side of the aisle. Um, and, and very outspokenly so than Mitt Romney. And if Trump is able, uh, you know, who is who is known for his thin skin, if he's able to sort of transcend that and put Romney and install Romney in such a prestigious, important, powerful position to sort of bury the hatchet, that would be a signal saying, like, look, it's I have to put the country ahead of sort of the way that I have conducted myself throughout my adult life and certainly during the campaign, I think that would be a, a very positive 
signal. Now, the other question. I, 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 can be, I just say, I just want to, I want to jump in, guy, to yeah. say that I've always thought that the best thing, and well, who knows whether Trump would do this, but the only way to really make never Trump, well, to go, be, let's just get beyond never Trump in terms of bringing mm-hmm. together the Republican Party would be reconciliation and results. What you're talking about with Romney, that would be a huge step, I think, towards reconciliation, towards showing that, look, the primary was the primary. Now the Republican Party's uh, at a period where it needs to come together because it needs to get results. And if Trump extends that hand and also shows that he's doing some good things, that's how I think people that's how I think the party comes together. So anyway, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, I think that's very good analysis. And that's part of the reason why. So I've actually been pushing for Romney to go to the VA because I think Romney is a turnaround guy who takes dysfunctional organizations and fixes them. And I think that our veterans deserve really good management at the VA to whip things into shape. But it, it sounds like another a friend of mine, Pete Hegseth, might be uh, the leader in the clubhouse for that. Position. Wait, Major Pete is up for VA secretary? I, I saw the Daily Caller was reporting that today. Major um, Pete? We got to get Major Pete on it. I didn't know this. He's now, he, like, know, like you, guy. He is a beloved. He is a beloved official Freedom Hut guest. I mean, I'm like shocked. I oh, didn't know terrific. this. Yeah, he's a terrific. Now, I I don't know if this is true. It was just something that got floated, um, and and you know, based on sources or whatever. But it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me. Uh, you know, he's a charismatic young face and a great voice for veterans, being himself a veteran. But anyway, my point going back to Romney was. If you put Romney in a big position, let's say Secretary of State, another one that I've written about was, and I think the most important pick Trump is going to make is the Supreme Court pick, because that's a lifetime appointment as opposed to, you know, four or eight years or whatever it might be. And one of the folks that I've been really pressing hard on is Mike Lee, who I think would be an absolutely outstanding candidate for the Supreme Court uh, on almost every level, including the fact, by the way, that he's 45 years old. That certainly helps. Um, but he and he's a jur- also, he's a conservative jurisprudence super nerd, and I mean that affectionately. It's true. Absolutely, I mean, uh, and and he has wonderful temperament. He's got some bipartisan cred on some things. Um, he's very sharp, rock solid, I, young. I, I just think he would be a terrific pick, and it would also be in the same vein of what you're talking about. He would Mike Lee would embody both results and reconciliation because you remember at the convention he was one of the guys literally screaming his objection. Uh, on the floor and the whole rules thing is he was in trying to at least get a vote with an opportunity maybe to, uh, you know, disrupt the Trump nomination. He was a and is a big, big critic of Donald Trump. If if Trump were to then turn around and name the lead of the court, that would be such an olive branch to never Trumpers. It would also signal to the left saying, look, I'm putting someone on the court. You may not agree with his worldview or his judicial philosophy, but he is not beholden to me. He is not, you know, some lackey of mine. And it would be such an out- unquestionably outstanding result from a conservative perspective to have a constitutionalist, a young, smart constitutionalist like Mike Lee on the court. So I, I must say that, you know, Tom Price was a great pick at HHS. Yeah, let's talk about uh, that there, for a second. I know you wrote about this on townhall.com. Why, why do you like Tom Price so much for HHS secretary? So a couple reasons. Uh, The first is he, from the very beginning, was one of the Republicans who wasn't just opposed to Obamacare, which of course he was. He's been one of the leaders in the fight. But he was, even all the way back in 2009, 
he was presenting alternatives, like legislative language bills, not just saying we need something better and, you know, uh, competition within the states and health savings accounts. It was a very specific, comprehensive plan. So when Democrats were saying, including our president, who continues to say this, that Republicans had, you know, no plans of their own, that has always been a lie. And Tom Price has been the leader on that. He has thought in great depth and at great amounts of time about how to replace Obamacare. Uh, he was also, and, and he works, he has a great relationship with Paul Ryan. I think the two of them would work very closely and have a very similar vision about repeal and replace, which I think would be uh, terrific in helping to steer the administration, the messaging, and shepherd this thing through Capitol Hill. And also, after Paul Ryan went to Ways and Means from the Budget Committee, uh, Tom Price was the Budget Committee chairman. So he's also a debt hawk. He's also a guy who understands the arcane stuff like reconciliation when it comes to parliamentary tactics, but also the, the wider fiscal picture, and he sees it with very clear eyes. So I think you know between his leadership on Obamacare replacement and his deep knowledge on the budget level, those are two very good signs. And then also he happens to be – he's a medical doctor. He's a surgeon. Uh, he can talk about these issues from the experience of someone who has treated many patients over the years. I think that is helpful. And I just happen to know a couple of folks who've worked for him who say he is just a, a wonderful, wonderful human being, which you can be a wonderful person and a bad leader. Um, but if you're a wonderful person who inspires loyalty and respect and you're a good leader, that's, that's a good combination. And I think Tom Price has it. By the way, what's the latest guy on the Jill Stein recount extravaganza? Sure. I mean, it's, it's, you know, uh, update, still stupid. Um, it's going nowhere. It was always going nowhere. Um, it, there's, I've seen disputed reports that they may have even missed the deadline in Pennsylvania. The Democratic election chief in Pennsylvania said there's no irregularities at all um, that they found in their state. The, the guy who runs the elections in Wisconsin, who's also a Democrat, was like, uh, we did a statewide recount in 2011 during the whole recall thing. And that changed a grand total of 300 votes. Uh, and Trump won Wisconsin by 22,000 some odd votes. I mean, this is this is a scam with Jill Stein bilking people uh, for their money, which could be much better spent, you know, actually, you know, helping poor people and the sort of things that. Can, can you uh, explain to people like what, what, let's? There's been this talk about how she may not use the money for the recount. How does that work? Let, let's say that she was bilking people. What? So she gets to raise this money and then do what with it? Well, she she said that she couldn't guarantee that it would go to the recount. I think in Wisconsin it is because they were able to secure that. They're pushing in Michigan. They're pushing in uh, Pennsylvania as well. And I mean, here's the other thing, Buck. By the way, let's say it's not going to happen. Trump won. Trump won Pennsylvania by like 70,000 votes. Michigan is probably the closest at 10 or 11,000. But again, this would take massive numbers of votes changing. It's not going to happen. If it did, let's say they recounted and discovered tens upon tens of thousands of new votes for Hillary Clinton and none for Donald Trump, and the results flipped in both Pennsylvania and Michigan or Pennsylvania and Wisconsin or Michigan and Wisconsin, any two of those three, you add that together, she still loses to Trump. Um, and, and one thing no one's talking about is New Hampshire. The closest state, which Hillary won, is New Hampshire. That was like 2,700 votes or something like that, much closer than any of these Trump-won states that the left is yelling about recounts. How about a recount? If we're going to waste time and money, how about New Hampshire? 
where it was super close, and the Senate race was even closer. Uh, it's it's just a, I guess it's sort of fun to ridicule and mock, especially considering that the left was all furious and just pronouncing itself horrified and scandalized by Donald Trump leaving his options open and hedging on the question of accepting the results of the election. Uh, and now here we are weeks later, and, and the Clinton people have sort of signed on because they don't want to take off their base, but they're also telling reporters, well, you know, we don't really think this is going to go anywhere. Um, and, of course, Jill Stein, arguably a spoiler to begin with, now being sort of the leader of this effort is is hilarious. Um, but, look, Trump won. It's over. Uh, and I think Trump would be well-advised to stop tweeting about it, <laughs> tweeting about how he really did win the popular vote, but there were a bunch of illegal votes. Like that's Yeah, what nonsense. was with the three million illegal votes thing? I mean, so even in a Trump world, I, I just didn't get it. Where's, where's he getting that number? Nowhere. Right out of his rear end. Um, he's like, this. hey, this looks good. I'm going to say it. Um, the much better argument that he made was a few days prior on Twitter, and this is the argument that I've been making, and I have actually a post at townhall.com today, giving conservatives four responses to liberals who keep obsessing about Hillary Clinton and the popular vote. And it's sort of like, all right, if they're going to keep beating that drum, here are four things to come back at them with. Um, And one of them is Trump made the point, and this is the most important one, he won the popular votes in 30 separate statewide elections, which is how we determine the presidency. If the system were different, and we determine who won based on the popular vote nationally, both parties, both campaigns would have completely different strategies going in. So there's saying that Hillary won the popular vote is even more meaningless than meets the eye. There is less than meets the eye. Not only is it not the system, if it were the system, the plan of attack for Donald Trump would have been completely different. And, you know, we've, we've seen she outspent him by double. She outspent him two to one overall, and he still beat her. You don't think that he could have managed to find a way to win the popular vote if that was the goal? I mean, that's ridiculous. That's the point he should stick with. Yeah, I mean, he would have then all of a sudden there's no such thing as a state, a major blue state that a Republican writes off because the more votes you can get in that state, the better. Right. So you put a tremendous amount of resources even into states you would lose like New York and California. Exactly. That's exactly right. Um, and, And you also go to Texas. And you try to squeeze every last vote that you can out of Texas and the deep south and places where all these states that got, you know, very little attention, you would then, again, you would overhaul the entire playbook and, and start from scratch. But that's not the system. That's not in our Constitution. The goal, as everyone knew, was to win the Electoral College. That is how Hillary campaigned. That's how Trump campaigned and Trump, Trump beat her. Um, and if you really want to troll the left, you can say, look, she tried to, she tried to buy the election with lots of money from millionaires and billionaires and outspent him in the money in politics race by a two-to-one margin because they're all against money in politics except their money in politics where they consistently outraise and outspend conservatives who are supposedly the evil beneficiaries of money in politics. She crushed him in the money race, and he you know, used his money more surgically and went over, you know, went over the media's head and, and ran an, a non-traditional campaign, and, and he beat her. And that's, I think, part of what 
the Clinton people are still in denial about. Yeah, they're, they're, they're just, they just cannot accept this. I mean, you're, you're just stating the reality guy, and they are in reality denial in a big way still. Guy Benson yep. is townhall.com's political editor. You can follow him on Twitter, and you also should check out his book, End of Discussion, and watch him on Fox News. Guy, great to have you. Thanks, my friend. All right, we'll talk to you soon, buddy. Uh, 888-900-3393. Team, we'll be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show. On the Blaze Radio Network. I saw this piece um, that I uh, sort of resonated with me for a second yesterday. It was in the Daily Mail, which, again, as I said, the Daily Mail has some great stuff. And then you're like, oh, gosh, I don't want to read about that. Um, But fubbing, uh, which I'd never heard of before. And I just unsolicited advice uh, is you want to avoid fubbing people. It's phone snubbing. And there's this study that they talk about here that 70% of uh, or 77 people that that feel like there's fubbing, phone snubbing going on believe that it hurts their interactions with their partner. Um, and I do I think it's so important, especially if you're sort of getting uh, time with somebody that doesn't even have to be time with with a romantic partner, but just time with anybody that you sort of cherish. It's I, the phone thing, man. It's an addiction. We all pull out our phone so much all the time, and I really think it's uh, it's detrimental in in pretty big ways. Um, I'm also somebody who, when someone pulls out a phone and you're at dinner with them or something, and they think it's okay to put the phone for two things, you you shouldn't have the phone out. Uh, you shouldn't have the phone out on the dinner table. Period. I hate that. Hate it. Unless you're going to say, hey. I'm a doctor and there's like a brain surgery going on. They may need me. And then unless there's some external, you know, or, you know, uh, I may, I'm on, you know, dad duty and I might have to go pick up my kid who's sick at whatever. I don't know. Some story unacceptable. And also the pulling out the phone and looking at the phone while you're at dinner with somebody. Ooh, that's when you get up, you excuse yourself, you go to the restroom, and then you can check your phone if you need to. Um, so I just, uh, fubbing is bad. I learned a new word and I think it's a important one because we shouldn't fub. Uh, we shouldn't fib either. Silencer Shop, sponsor this half hour. If you've never thought about a silencer, I tell you, you should check one out. You should go online. The best place is silencershop.com. They offer the simplest, most straightforward buying experience you can possibly get for a silencer or a suppressor. So you just go on there and you know that you can trust Silencer Shop to handle the process quickly because they submit more forms than anybody else in the country. They offer the best service along with the best prices. And when you purchase a silencer from silencershop.com, you pick it up at a local dealer with no transfer fees and no shipping. I'm telling you, a silencer is a must-have accessory for your firearm. It makes shooting more enjoyable. It reduces the blast to a more comfortable level. It makes the whole thing more fun. So check it out. Again, silencershop.com, silencershop.com. Help make the world a quieter place. Um, also, phone lines are open here, team, 888-900-3393. Phones are blowing up yesterday. Like to take a couple calls today if you got some time. Do give a ring. First time callers, hey, what's up? Call in, it's fun. We chat. You get on radio. The rest of the team gets to hear from you. Nothing but upside, everybody. Give me a ring. We'll be back in just a few minutes. The Bug Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. 
is the Buck Sexton Show. All right, everybody, we're joined now by Brooke Rogers. She's a contributor to Heat Street. Brooke, good to have you. Hey, Buck. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so tell me a bit about the, well, how should we feel now that Nancy Pelosi once again has run the gauntlet and is going to stay in leadership for the Democrats? Sad, happy, indifferent. I think she's the worst. Uh, but go ahead. I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm not a Democrat, so I don't, I, I think that I feel the same as I did the last time she was put in charge. I think that, you know, I, I don't like Nancy Pelosi. In fact, I think that she is a hypocrite. I mean, she I, I actually covered, I did a story for National Review last year about her um, and just kind of dug into her finances a little bit. I mean, she she goes in front of um, uh, middle class, working class people and says that we have to close the uh, income gap. The rich are getting richer and we have to stop it. And meanwhile, she uh, owns a 16 acre vineyard in Napa Valley. She, you know, disclosed actually Bloomberg Business in 2013 said that she was the wealthiest member of House leadership from either party. Uh, she, I mean, she really does exemplify, I think, everything that um, the party is moving away from. The Democratic Party is moving more toward the left. They're moving more. Um, they're becoming they're they're out progressive. <laughs> uh, Nancy Pelosi. And I, but the thing about it is that there's all this outrage about her being reelected, and she really is cut from the same cloth as the candidate they put up for president this year. I mean, if you look at it, they're, they're, I know that they're trying to make Nancy Pelosi the straw man for this um, and saying, she, you know, she's everything that's wrong with the party. She is the reason why uh, the Democrats lost their footing in the House and the Senate. But she is exactly like Hillary Clinton in almost every way. She is, um, you know, old school D.C. She's been in charge for um, way too many years. She's a 76-year-old woman who... Um, has she's a multimillionaire, and she's pointing at Republicans saying, you know, the rich have to stop getting richer, and everyone else is looking at her and saying, but you have, all, you are the rich, you are, you are the point one percent, and I think that, um, I mean, I again, this isn't my party, I don't, uh, I don't condone what they, you know, her being put back into into power, but it's also not my, <laughs> not my problem, it's not our problem. She is the, uh, she is the other side. She is the example of uh the hypocrisy of the democrats and by the way there are already speaking of powerful women in the democratic party there are calls for michelle obama there are even michelle political action committees urging her to run for the white house in 2020 but oh president obama says never going to happen i don't think i believe president obama on this one i think michelle obama I, i think she probably runs for senate first in Illinois, and then runs for the presidency, but I don't see her stepping aside. That is, you know, it's kind of funny because, you know, we it's a great, good transition from Nancy Pelosi because Michelle Obama is the uh, antithesis of Nancy Pelosi, even though they're in the same party. She is this young, uh, hip, if you want to put it that way, um, woman who I think is universally loved by her party. I don't think you would find a Democrat who would say, I hate Michelle Obama, or I have, you know, a real problem with Michelle Obama, because she is this, I mean, you know, objectively, this very classy, very charismatic um, woman. She's a great speaker. Again, she kind of exemplifies the, um, the young movement. And I really think she could pull, 
she could fill in the gaps that Hillary Clinton couldn't if she did run for president. Um, you know, we look at minority turnout was dismal for the Democrats this year. Uh, Hillary Clinton just could not pull in um, minorities and women and young people in the same way that Obama could in 2012 and 2008. And she could solve that problem. I think she I think she'd have an amazing turnout of uh, minorities and women. And, um, you know, this is a possibility to run for a Senate first. I think the precedent that Donald Trump has set is that you don't need to have any experience in government. And in fact, it might be a bad thing to have experience in government. I mean, again, if you look back at Nancy Pelosi, um, I think people are getting tired of seeing the same faces over and over again. Um, and so I do think she would have, she could be a, a strong candidate. Um, I think she would be a candidate to be feared. And not only that, but she's been in the White House before. And I think that there is this weird appeal on um, the Democrat, you know, on the left, having the first um, African-American president and the first woman president both be an Obama would be unprecedented and also just really a powerful statement. I think that the first female president would also be a minority. So I think she would be, um, I, you know, I, I don't think you would have to, she, I don't think she'd really have to take strong positions on policy. I think that she would naturally try to um, salvage whatever's left of um you know, universal health care, whatever's left of Obamacare in 2020, I don't think there'll be much of it left. But um, the thing is, we also have to look at, we don't even know what the uh, party, you know, we don't know, know what the political atmosphere is going to be in 2020, but um, I think she could pull, I think she could pull it through. Let's talk about college students for a second. Students at AU. Yeah, okay. Do we, by the way, do we have the audio guy? Uh, let's, let's listen to this. Students at American University okay. think that Castro is better than Trump. Play it. Uh. I mean, right now, I'm not, I don't think Donald Trump is very good, and I know that Fidel Castro has done some good things for the world, so I'd say he's proven himself, at least in the long term, to be uh, more favorable, in my opinion, than Donald Trump. He was a remarkable leader in many ways. Oh, that's really hard. Um... Like Trump or Castro, really hard. If uh, administration is anything like he said it will be, then I think that Fidel Castro will absolutely have been a better leader to the Cuban people than Trump will be to the U.S. just based on his statements alone. I feel that he really changed Cuba in so many ways that really made possibilities for the Cuban people nearly endless. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, my God. like endless being you know endless ways to be a prisoner with no rights it's it's amazing what do you think about this oh the future is not bright that is so sad. i think the the problem that we're facing is that um first of all the, especially in, among college kids there's just this historical illiteracy um that they don't even know what he did and on top of that, there's this weird kind of blind hatred for capitalism. So people see communism as the remedy for it. So, you know, all they hear is the, he was this communist revolutionary and they just kind of hop on board with that. They're also seeing people like, um, you know, the prime minister of Canada going on Twitter and saying that he was remarkable, which I noticed one of the people actually said, oh, he was a remarkable leader. He was probably just repeating what he heard uh, Justin Trudeau say, which is that he's a remarkable leader and larger than life who served his people. And I, it's, it's completely mind boggling how they could think that, it, you know, I, I've always thought of Castro. I, every time I hear that name, it's just synonymous with 
um, dictatorship and uh, prison camps. And he was the crazy thing is he is they're saying, you know, if Donald Trump's um, uh, if, if his presidency is anything like what he says it's going to be, Castro's going to be better. But Castro did all the things that we can even imagine Trump doing in our worst nightmares. He put um, gay people and Jehovah's Witnesses in prison camps. He killed, he was responsible for the deaths of tens of thousands of people. I just think it is a case of uh, these kids just don't know what they're talking about. They they don't know who he is, or they don't understand who he is, or they've just been brainwashed by this pop culture that says that he uh, is, this, is this cool revolutionary uh, character. So, I mean, at this point, I just think it's... Uh, I don't know what hope there is. <laughs> this is what we're looking at. For uh, I mean, for, you're you're like a you're an actual millennial. So if you feel like there's no hope for the future, I am. I oh yeah, no, I'm a young millennial, and um, I. How old are you? Wait, I don't even know. I'm 21. What? Wow. <laughs> I did not know like, that. I thought you were like 25 or 26. Interesting. All well, right. You 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 have you I have the bearing of of a of a uh, a writer of many years. Um. One more for you. New York City Revolution Club sets American flag ablaze outside Trump Tower. People said it. It looks like it's true. Trump, with his flag-burning tweet, was trolling anti-Trumpers into being dumb enough to light flags on fire. At the end of the day, this just makes the anti-Trump people look dumb, and nothing happens to Trump. Yeah, I, well, I mean, his response was, was pretty bad, uh, but it does just make them—I mean, I don't know what they're trying to prove, that they can light flags outside Trump Tower. Yes, you can do that. That's Okay, <laughs> I mean, it does just make them look like they're. It makes them look like petulant children. It makes them look like they're throwing temper tantrums. I don't know what else to say. His response was horrible, but uh, I mean, this, this is just 2016, man. I don't know what else to say. This yeah, I don't know what to say either. Uh, representation of everything. <laughs> Brooke Rogers is a real deal, legit millennial, and she's a contributor to Heat Street, <laughs> and you can follow her on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle, Brooke? Uh, BKE Rogers. B.K.E. Rogers. Brooke, great to have you. Thanks yes. for joining. Thanks for having me, Buck. Good talking to you. Uh, phone lines open, 888-900-3393. Team, we will be right back. Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. to the Buck Sexton Show. So I've got an update that I, I wasn't expecting, but I thought I should bring it up because I mentioned this case and we had our, our friend John Schindler on the first hour. John's a former NSA and also a, a counterintelligence officer by trade. Uh, so this kind of uh, this kind of storyline is, is right in, in his wheelhouse about uh, somebody who's acting as a double agent. But I've just found out a lot more about this from the Washington Post. And wow. Um, so the BS, uh, BFV rather is their, the German domestic intelligence agency. The U S is sort of alone in that we don't really have a full fledged domestic intelligence service. We have the FBI, but that's a law enforcement agency and we have DHS, but we don't really have a sort of MI5 or Shinbet or BFV equivalent here. Um, for reasons of, well, I think Americans are uncomfortable with the idea of having a, a domestic intelligence gathering agency that isn't very sort of strictly confined to the law, right? Because intel agencies, what, what intel agencies can do abroad is very different from what they can do here at home. 
and they gather a lot of information about it. Okay, different discussion, though. This is the update on this case of the infiltration of Germany's uh, BFE, which is has primary responsibility for stopping you know, Islamist uh, terrorist attacks. So this guy was a secret Islamist that, that they have arrested. And this just happened the last couple of weeks. It's all coming out now. He was in a digital digital chat room or a uh, chat room that's known as a place where Islamic militants gather to sort of exchange information. And it turns out that this guy started telling all of these Islamists state secrets uh, and they, he was trying to help them infiltrate and attack the BFV headquarters. This guy was a, he's a German citizen of Spanish descent, according to this piece. He's a married father of four, and not only was he a, uh, he was not a, just a secret Islamist, he was also a gay porn actor, according to the Washington Post. So he had appeared in uh, gay pornographic films. And they hired him to be a counterintelligence, counterterrorism officer for the uh, BFV. And he secretly converted to Islam uh, while and didn't, I guess, didn't tell anybody, obviously. And he tried to give details to Islamic militants in a known Islamic militant chat room to allow them to attack. The BFE, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that, you know, sounds like it comes out of uh, the show Homeland or whatever, but this is true, uh, at least based on what we know now. Uh, Washington Post writes here, Enter the unfolding case now of a porn actor turned Muslim convert turned spy turned Islamist turncoat. So he was a gay porn actor. He converted to Islam. He then became BFV and then tried to uh, and then became an uh, Islamist and then wanted to help the Islamists attack the German spy agency. Wow. Okay. Um, that was not the, the that was not the initial uh, sense of this that I had. Not everybody was reporting on it in this way. And of course, now some are saying maybe he suffers from multiple personality disorder, or there's some other aspects of this that we have not yet gotten the full facts uh, on. But uh, certainly, certainly an interesting case. Uh, I'm a little surprised. You know, John mentioned this too that there have probably been Islam, at least suspected Islamist infiltrations of U.S. intelligence agencies. Um, you haven't heard about them, and you have to think, well, have you not heard about them because they haven't happened, or have you not heard about them because there's this constant tension from within, particularly this sort of secret side of government, of wanting to have people who have certain backgrounds, language skills, uh, can blend in with... Yes, jihadist circles, uh, and not having somebody who's an actual jihadist. I mean, what could be better if you were a member of, if you were sort of the senior ranks, I should say, of ISIS or Al Qaeda? There are a few things that you would want more, short of a catastrophic, like a you know nuclear attack on America. Uh, few things would be of greater use to you than to have just one person who had infiltrated the specifically the counterterrorism or counterintelligence or counterterrorism would actually be best counterterrorism arm of a major U.S. intelligence agency with access to all various operations, with access to the sources used uh, to try to get into these, uh, try to infiltrate and, and destroy these organizations. So that there's that very real possibility, and I just feel like uh, John was hinting at it. I'm sure we've had some cases, not necessarily as interesting as the German spy who was a one-time gay porn actor and secret Islamist, as the Post has it, but I'm sure we've had some efforts to infiltrate U.S. intel that uh, 
they've swept under the rug because, well, nobody wants to deal with the reality of how complicated this stuff can be and how dangerous it can be, at least not in the public eye. Uh, hour three coming up, team. We've got a lot to discuss. Uh, if you've got any thoughts on the show so far, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Um, we're going to keep talking. We're going to keep the Freedom Hut a-rocking. Uh, also, 888-900-3393 on those phone lines. Going to take a quick break and then right back into action. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. All right, team, welcome back to the Freedom Hunt. Great to have you as always. Chris Jacob is our guest. Chris Jacobs is our guest now. He is the founder of Juniper Research Group. Chris, great to have you. Great to be with you. All right, so let's talk a bit about what the what the future of Obamacare is based on, first, the pick of Tom Price, as the New York Times refers to him, an Obamacare critic. What is Mr. Price likely to do as HHS secretary? Well, I think the first thing he's going to do is, is use the regulatory process to the maximum extent possible to pave the way for legislative efforts to repeal and replace Obamacare. He's also, in conjunction with the new pick to head the Centers for Medicare Medicaid Services, I think you're going to see a significant expansion of flexibility to the states with respect to their Medicaid programs. A lot of it, uh, as a conservative, all wisdom on health policy does not emanate in Washington, D.C., and I say that as someone who lives in Washington. It's better getting it back to the states and back to the locations where where local communities can make those decisions for themselves. Now, people talk about, we've been talking about repeal and replace with Obamacare for a long time. I've heard recently some even conservative, uh, right-leaning healthcare experts who say, well, you can't really entirely repeal it. You'll just be able to sort of take out parts of it or, or do sort of surgery on Obamacare, if you will, but not completely you know, toss it out the window and bring in something new. Do you agree with that, or do you think it is, is a full repeal of the bill possible? The the budget reconciliation bill that passed last year provides a great roadmap for repealing Obamacare. It repealed all of the laws, uh, entitlement expansions. It repealed all of the laws, tax increases. Now, under the budget reconciliation rules, there are some portions of the law that would remain on, on the statute books unless and until Republicans get 60 votes to repeal the thing outright. But I think that is certainly a good first step towards dismantling the law. We can go back and see what else can be dis- dismantled of Obamacare pursuant to the Senate procedures. And what are some of the things that would change that would be beneficial to those of us right now who are sitting? Look, a, a lot of people feel like they aren't necessarily touched yet by Obamacare, or those who aren't in the individual market, would would they notice a difference? I mean, you know, we keep talking about Obamacare, but is this just going to make health care better for everybody, or is it going to stop Obamacare from making health care worse? Uh, hopefully a little bit of both. I think the idea is to make health care more personalized, 
that you make the choices rather than a government bureaucrat, that you get to buy the health insurance plan you want. Uh, my health insurance plan actually here in Washington, D.C., is being canceled for 2017, primarily because of government-imposed uh, restrictions imposed by the District of Columbia government. Um, we, we shouldn't see the federal government doing that. Hopefully states won't do that. Let more states decide, create more options, and then really focus on reducing costs. President Obama promised in 2008 that his plan would cut premiums by $2,500 per family. That hasn't happened. We need to focus on reducing the underlying health care costs. Underlying those costs by giving people more, it gives people more autonomy in their choices, uh, letting states compete or letting states decide. I mean, what are what are the real mechanisms so that everybody listening can kind of understand this? How would costs come? Because remember, Obamacare was supposed to drive down costs. We know that's not happening. Um, right. How how would the alternatives that are now hopefully going to be put in place uh, by the Trump administration, by Price as HHS secretary, how do they make health insurance cheaper? Or health care cheaper, I, I, I should it, say. Sure. It's, it's removing some of the mandates, both on, in Washington and at the, at the state level, improving competition, in, providing incentives for wellness, and expanding the, the physician supply. I will give you one great example that many states, scope of practice laws, this is something that states can be doing right now, actually, to um, reform health care, improve access, and lower costs. Physician assistants, nurse practitioners, nurse anesthetists. A lot of states impose undue restrictions and say, you can't practice, you need to have a physician standing over you and supervising you. Letting them uh, practice to the full scope of their, their medical license expands access and saves money. You don't necessarily need, if you have strep throat, you don't necessarily need to go to an ear, nose, and throat specialist and have them look at you for $150.00. You can have a nurse practitioner do a strep test and give you an antibiotic at a minute clinic for $50. It's, the, it's those kind of steps that will help reduce health costs. Right. Well, it's funny because here in New York, at least, I feel like when I do go to a doctor's office, there's a very high probability I'm actually only going to see a physician's assistant. And yet they charge me doctor or they charge my health insurer doctor's office prices or d- doctor prices, rather. Right. And, and it, it, it's really reforming those scope of practice laws to you will expand the supply of physicians and therefore you will drive you will uh, physicians and physician assistant and therefore you will help help drive down the price right i mean that seems that seems like a, a straightforward application that would work here uh, is there anything else and what what are the most important things that a trump administration can do for health care overall i mean if, if i could sort of get you three minutes with the donald himself in trump tower and you were able to sort of just give him your uh, your your rundown of what health care needs to look like in this country, what does it sound like? I mean, uh, oh, let's say Obamacare, off the table, it's gone. It, it's like it never existed. Now what? Sure. I, I, I think you need to reform the tax treatment of health insurance, and then you need to provide – that that should be done at the federal level. And then you need to provide the, the right in, incentives to the states to let them reform health care. This should not be a, a, a big, top-down, Washington-mandated effort. It's providing states with the right tools and the right incentives to reform their laws, to reform their their insurance laws, to reform their scope of practice laws, to reform their medical liability laws. As a constitutional conservative, medical liability, it should happen to end defensive medicine. It should happen at the state level, not necessarily from Washington. Um, 
devolving that power and that authority would, would be much more effective than to try to build another huge bureaucracy. HHS has 80,000 employees. Is, is it literally a government agency that's too big to manage, too big to fail? And I think it has back a, to the does state. it have a trillion dollars? I think it has a trillion dollar budget, right? It does. When you add- it does. That's a big budget, even by government standards. Even, even by government standards, yes. What do you think of Tom Price as the guy to run this thing? I, I think it, it is wonderful that you're getting a physician and a practitioner who has experience in health policy. As somebody, as a conservative who works in health policy, uh, I've always lamented the fact that many conservatives, many Republicans shy away from going down into the weeds of health care policy. Um, whether it's congressmen or senators on, on Capitol Hill. Dr. Price has not done that. He's run towards it, uh, and he has put, put out good ideas and, and so is well-versed on, on all those policy details. You really need somebody to be on, on, well-versed on those policy details because they're big programs and the details matter. Uh, are we going to do anything about Medicare, by the way, or is that just uh, untouched uh, and untouchable still? I, I remember a few years ago, Paul Ryan, Mitt Romney, talking about how Medicare is going to bankrupt us, got all these problems. Not a lot of talk about that now. What, what happened? I thought Medicare was really expensive and problematic. I thought the baby boomers were going to suck up all the oxygen from uh, or all, all the cash with Medicare. It, it, is, it is incredibly problematic. Unfortunately, Obamacare, in many respects, made the problem worse. It saved money for Medicare, reduced Medicare reimbursements, but it used that money not really to improve Medicare solvency, it, it used it to pay for the new Obamacare entitlements. Unfortunately, it made government accounting made Medicare look more solvent on paper. So during the presidential campaign this past year, neither Hillary Clinton nor Donald Trump really looked at talked about Medicare reform or had plans to reform our entitlements to make them sustainable. Uh, since the election, it looks like certainly Paul Ryan is interested in entitlement reform. Dr. Price has been interested in entitlement reform. That's something that has to happen. Uh, it's just a question of, of when, because unsustainable trends are, in the long run, unsustainable. And is there anything that the Trump administration should do with regard to Medicaid? I remember reading that study, I forget where it came out of, that showed that even access to Medicaid didn't result in, in better health outcomes. So whether you're a, whether you're a person, a low-income person who is on Medicaid or not, uh, the health outcomes seem to be kind of the same. Medicaid still, though, takes up a huge chunk of a lot of state budgets. Is is there something to be done with it? it can it be run better? I mean, I, I don't hear people talking about Medicaid either. No, they, they, it should it should be run better, and it should be run at the state level. Ironically, most of the coverage gains from Obamacare have been not from the exchanges, which have been a mess. Most of the coverage gains from Obamacare have been through expansion of Medicaid. And I think giving states more flexibility, whether it's things like work requirements, more flexibility to manage their programs, to reduce costs and improve the quality of care, that is certainly needed because Medicaid is one of the largest programs on the federal level, and then it's one of the largest programs at the state level. It is sucking uh, state resources that otherwise could be spent on K-12 education, higher education, transportation, law enforcement, all of those state-level state, state level priorities are being subsumed by this massive Medicaid uh, program. So we have to reform that as well. Chris Jacobs is the founder of the Juniper Research Group. Chris, anywhere else you want to direct people to look at your work? 
certainly you can check out thefederalist.com, and I'm on Twitter at Chris Jacobs HC. Fantastic. Chris, appreciate your time today. Thanks very much for having me. Team, phone lines are wide open, 888-900-3393. Sponsor this half hour is Yankee Hill Machine. Yankee Hill Machine makes and manufactures some of, I guess making and manufacturing the same thing, they develop and manufacture some of the finest firearms in the market, period. They've got great custom ARs. Every piece of the AR, they can sell you different uh, different parts of it, different components. Um, they do it top to bottom. It's all done in their shop up in Massachusetts. It's a completely family-owned business. It is all made in America. It's all done here in the U.S. of A. They've got great products. They're gun guys. They love the Second Amendment, and they really enjoy what they do. So please check out YHM.net, especially if you're thinking about getting some fire, getting a firearm for yourself or a loved one this uh, holiday season. They've also got awesome suppressors you can check out on there. They make those, too. YHM.net, YHM.net, Yankee Hill Machine. That is YHM.net. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. got john calling in from nebraska john you were on the buck saxon show welcome hey buck uh you know how there's been some talk about those who want california to secede from the union mm-hmm. uh, honestly i i hope it happens and then we can we can sense off california and they can give away all their guns and invite the entire muslim world and open the southern border and we'll see how that works out for them Wait, you're gonna have to. I, I missed. I missed why you wanted to happen. It, it cut out for a second here. You said what you want them to. Yeah, I, I said I hope it happens because then we can we can fence off California, and they can give away all their guns and open the southern border and invite the entire Muslim world, and we'll see how that works out for them. Oh, well, I mean, if California was able to run itself without any interference from the federal government, it would be kind of a fascinating experiment in in progressive uh, ideology. Uh, you know, California is blessed in many ways as a state. It has Silicon Valley. Obviously, the coastline's incredible. It's got Hollywood. It's got some big sectors that sort of hold it up and create a tremendous amount of of uh, revenue for the uh, state tax collectors. Uh, but it's got a lot of problems with the way that it functions, with its budget, uh, with its its government uh, processes. And it would be interesting. You know, the, the really interesting experiment would be if you could just sort of in a vacuum set California and Texas, you know, have them both secede and see how they both do right. as states on their on their own uh, economically and, and otherwise. Uh, and as I said, I mean, California does have some built in advantages with two enormous sectors that are really still sort of based uh, primarily out of California, although not entirely. Uh, Texas is getting more and more of that stuff, from what I understand, more and more uh, sort of high tech. And I know Austin's become a, a bit of a hub for the the tech community. But in any in any case, yeah. Also, by the way, if California goes, Republicans win, you know, every national election for the next few decades. Right? I mean, they <laughs> right. they assume that the electoral college that California goes blue. I mean, that's their that is the anchor of the entire Democrat map. So if they were no longer to be a part of the union, Democrats are not winning any more elections. That is very true. I, I think the state would go under so fast that you wouldn't even be able to blink. And then we could. Well, take what's it like living? What's it like? I've never been in Nebraska, John. I'm going to be honest. What's it like living in Nebraska? You big fan? Um, it's, Thumbs up. 
Sell me on Nebraska yeah, I mean, for a minute. It's, good. it's inexpensive. It's mostly conservative, except for Omaha has got some uh, a more liberal population. Though, though even that district voted for uh, Trump this time around. But yeah, it's just it's inexpensive. I mean, lots of people rag on it for being boring, which. I mean, if you're the type of person who wants to live in a city and go to clubs all the time, then, yeah, it probably is a boring place to live. But I, I think, I mean, it seems like no matter where you live, you just end up doing the same things anyway. So I, I think it's all right. Omaha actually has a pretty good music scene, from what I understand, right? Didn't 311 come out of Omaha, the band, 90s band, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about? Yeah, they, they did. I'm, I'm not a fan, but they did come out of Omaha. And yeah, they well, have the I mean, they're just the only one that I know of that's famous. I'm sure there are some others, too. But I, I need to get out to some of these states that I've never been to before. Nebraska's on the list. I've never I've never been. But, I, I you know, so you, you like it. It's chill. It's inexpensive. That's, no, you know, I know you're not, like, working for the Nebraska Tourism Board, but are you in a city or are you out in the, out in the countryside? I live in Omaha. I, I grew up on in the rural area on a farm, so I've I've seen both sides. But right there now, must I live be a downtown. In, in Omaha, you're going to tell me there's no gluten free bakery in Omaha. There's no like organic, <laughs> sustainable farm to table restaurant where I can hang out with all my hipster, but secretly hang out with all my hipster friends and then do a conservative radio there, show. There is a a hipster community. It's called Benson, and that's where all the the hipsters go. So that we nice. we aren't without that type of. My allegedly I think, I think unacceptable and Im- improperly groomed facial hair would let me fit right in, for those of you making fun <laughs> of Buck's neck beard all the time. John in Nebraska, great to have you, man. Thanks for uh, indulging my Nebraska curiosity. I was just wondering. Great to have you. Shields high. Ah, yes. Why is it that all this, all, every city, every city basically is is more liberal than the rest of the state, and every city really that's of a certain size is Democrat? I, th- I don't know. i got to check on Dallas uh, overall. But you look at all the other cities, they're all Democrat strongholds. I mean, I'm here in New York City, and it's just, it's a fact of life that I get used to that you assume that people around you aren't, it's not even they're not Republican, you just can't even have a normal conversation with them, you know? I mean, they really think that, like, Ariana Huffington is a visionary, and that Aaron Sorkin is a genius, and Michael Moore is a patriot, and this is common, you're and you're like, what? Even with people who work in industries that are essentially the... Uh, epicenter of rapacious capitalism. Even the people I know work in finance or corporate lawyers, a lot of them, not all of them, there are obviously some exceptions. Uh, there's some there's some secret conservatives like the Sextons running around. But a, a lot of them are just, it's just, wow. I'm like, so so you make a lot of money and you know you are in a position where you're paying a lot of people in the service economy to sort of wait on you hand and foot, but you're really in touch with the common people. One of my favorite stories uh, from a friend of mine, I won't because he he didn't give me permission to share the story, but I I won't name him, so it's okay. It was he was uh, heading out west to the west coast, and um he was he was sitting in coach, but he was sort of like right behind first class, and Rachel Maddow was in first class, and somebody from coach saw her, and sort of walked over to say, you know, I just you know she was of course there in like a you know hipster cashmere hoodie or whatever. And uh, she she comes over to her and she says, you know, Rachel, I just want to thank you so much for all you've done for the middle class. And I felt like that was perfect. Rachel Maddow flying first class out to the West Coast to probably do, you know, the Bill Maher show or something. Or who knows? And uh, she is uh, she's being thanked by somebody in coach for all she does for the middle class. That's kind of that, that's sort of, that really is the Democratic Party. You know, it, it's run by multimillionaires who pretend to care about the middle class and who pander to the 
what would be called, you know, what do we call them? Economically disadvantaged, whatever the preferred term is. It used to be called lower class, but that's now mean. So now we say, uh, what, what's the, what's the uh, low income? There we go. Low income communities. So they pander low income communities. They squeeze the middle class. They pretend to love the middle class. And they're all upper class. That's the Democratic Party. But yes, so just want to thank. $10 million a year, Rachel Maddow, for, uh, you know, that's what she's paid, something like that, for all she's done for the middle class. Oh, she's done a ton for the middle class, making sure they all feel guilty so they pay higher taxes. 888-900-3393 on those phone lines. Team, got a special guest joining. Don't go anywhere. Back in just a few minutes. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Sexton. Team, we are joined now by Scott McEwen. He's the number one New York Times bestselling co-author of American Sniper. He's got a brand new book out called American Commander, Serving a Country Worth Fighting For and Training the Brave Soldiers Who Led the Way. Scott, great to have you. Good, good, good to talk to you, Buck. Thank you for having me on. So, Scott, you were co-author on this book, and you're helping to tell the story of Congressman Ryan uh, Zinke and what he did as a, as a SEAL commander. Give us some of the backstory. You know, Ryan is, is uh, I guess, the, the ultimate American story, if, if, if you think about it. A uh, kid who grew up in Montana, um, excellent athlete, ended up playing scholarship athlete at University of Oregon, played football. Uh, on a Division One A team at 230 pounds and played on the line uh, as a as a center, which just tells you how tough the guy is right off the bat there, especially a team of the caliber that Oregon developed into, you know, with the uh, Rich Brooks. And uh, then uh, decided that uh, he wasn't sufficiently uh, satisfied with a geology degree and went to join the Navy SEALs and ultimately became a commander at SEAL Team 6 and ran uh, – both, you know, a couple of teams there, some of which have become very famous after having uh, taken out Bin Laden and a few other bad guys in the recent past. So he's just really kind of viewed history from, from you know, especially SEAL Team history from the time of, uh, of the 80s when uh, Dick Marcinko was there to now when they're really recognized as probably the most effective killing force and fighting force in, in the world. And he, some, I mean, it's sort of a who's who in terms of people that he uh, worked with in the teams and trained in the teams, right? I mean, looking at yeah. some of the SEALs that were under his command, I mean, who were some of the individuals that he either uh, was right alongside or, or actually tra- trained in the process? Well, most notably for me, Buck, was that, uh, you know, Chris Kyle uh, introduced Ryan to me when Chris was still with us before he was killed in Texas, uh, you know, almost coming on three years now. And uh, so I got to know Ryan through Chris, and Chris's highest, if you will, accolade that he could say of a commanding officer or any officer is he didn't consider them an O. He considered them one of the men, one of the warriors, one of the guys that uh, kicking indoors and taking out bad guys. And that's exactly how the entire the entirety of the team and the force looks at, at Ryan Zinke. He's not an officer, per se, that stands back as a commander and gives orders. He's the guy that's up in the front, you know, with the gun, with the guys doing the jobs that uh, that America needs to be done to take out the uh, the the uh, terrorist agents all over the world. And Ryan was one of the guys who trained Chris at Buds, trained Marcus Luttrell, 
and also commanded them later on in their careers. So, I mean, there's a whole bunch of Navy SEALs out there, and I and you know that would say that probably Ryan is one of the guys that that led them to be what they are today. And that's really what this book, American Commander, is about: is telling the stories of what it is from a command level to make the decisions on who becomes a Navy SEAL and who doesn't. I'm speaking to Scott McEwen. He is co-author of American Commander, which is a new book out now, uh, speaking a lot about the SEAL community and and what goes on, the sorts of uh, sacrifices and, and the heroism of the SEAL community. We have Congressman Zinke, who served as the commander at SEAL Team, served as a commander at SEAL Team Six. He had two earned two bronze stars. Uh, he was in Iraq. I mean, he served right on the front lines of the battlefield. My understanding is one of the uh, one of the arguments that is made in the book, or one of the at least one of the observations made in the book, is that uh, Zinke thinks that we should have had different rules of engagement. Can you speak to that a bit? Yeah, Buck, I mean, as you well know, having your experience with the agency and seeing a lot of the things that get done, one of the most difficult things for our our And don't get done, by the way. Go ahead. Yeah, is, 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 is the fact that, you know, they're not able to engage in circumstances where the other guys, the bad guys, are able to. And it costs us lives. It costs us men on the battlefield. And, you know, and I can use a very good example that, uh, that we discussed in the book, and that is Extortion 17. Extortion 17 was the single largest loss of SEAL Team lives in the history of not the, not the, of, of, of the United States, SEAL teams, period. Uh, they had engaged in, 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 a, in an operation in Afghanistan. They knew that there was bad guys on the ground that, uh, that uh, had, uh, had uh, uh, what turned out to be a rocket-propelled grenade that brought the helicopter down that killed the entirety of the team. And, uh, and they were unable to engage that target, even though the C-130 Spectre was overhead and could have easily taken them out had they had the right rules of engagement. We lost uh, a number, almost almost 20 SEALs that day, all of the Air Force personnel um, you know, that, that were taking these SEALs to the battlefield, and, and we could have avoided the entire situation had we had the right the, the rules of engagement. And that's pretty much the, the DOD section that I just gave to you right there. So... I think that what Ryan's point is in this book and what our point is in writing this book is if you want us, our men and women from this country to go out and engage the enemy, by God, you give them the right rules of engagement to get the job done and to decisively win, not just win, decisively win on the battlefield. And that's what Ryan Zinke is all about. And that's what the SEAL teams are all about. And it's time this administration and I think this government turned around and said, we're not going to send our men and women and our boys and girls out there pretty young, 18 years old, to do these jobs unless we let them have the opportunity to win and to use the rules of engagement that are going to protect them and their, their teammates. And this is uh, re- related to, but certainly maybe a, a little bit outside the specific topic of, of the book, which I recommend everybody uh, check out, American Commander, Serving a Country Worth Fighting For and Training the Brave Soldiers Who Led the Way. Um, is is Congressman Zinke, uh, is, is, is Ryan um, hopeful with this new Trump administration that there could be a change in the rules of engagement, that there could be more of a let the let the warfighters do what is necessary, not just to accomplish the mission, but also to come home safely. As you point out, it's not just that this hampers them in their duties, it endangers them further in their duties. Exactly. You know, I think he's very, very, uh, very hopeful and, and very, you know, in, in, you know, engaged right now, if you will, with 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 Trump. And uh, he thinks that Trump has the right plan. I mean, he's he's hardened as the rest of us are by men such as General Mattis being considered for positions such as Secretary of State. 
even though the final decision has not yet been made, still we're getting guys from the military that have been there and done that, know what it is to command troops in the battlefield that are being considered for positions, you know, where we're putting people in harm's way. And I think that's a very, very good decision. We quote General Mattis extensively in the book. Ryan served with General Mattis in the Battle of Fallujah, number two, which, as many people may recall, was, was a particularly difficult engagement in Iraq. And Ryan was, you know, in charge of in charge of the SEAL team contingents while they were there, you know, at that battle. And Mattis was his commanding officer. And Ryan has nothing but the best things to say about Mattis and his ability to not only project force, but to to make it so that we can win. And so I think he's very hopeful that that Trump is going to take the political PC part of this this current DOD and and make it more realistic for the fighting men and women that we're asking to do these very difficult jobs for this country. And as a result, I think we're going to see a real change in our abilities and in you know in winning in winning these battles, not just trying to contain the ISISs of the world, but eliminating them. American commander serving a country worth fighting for and training the brave soldiers who lead the way. Uh, it is out now in bookstores and available on Amazon.com. We're speaking to Scott McEwen, the uh, co-author. Uh, the uh, other author is Congressman Ryan Zinke. Scott, really appreciate you joining us today. Great to have you on, and uh, we hope everybody checks out the book real soon. Hey, Buck, thank you very much for having me on, and thank you for the service that you did for the station as well. I don't think the CIA and the guys that work for them get as much credit as they should. There's some very difficult decisions being made out there right now by the agency, and uh, you know, I hope the guys are, are heartened by men like you that bring, bring the good word out to the people. I appreciate that very much, sir. Thank you. Great to talk to you, Scott. Um, all right, team. That's I was always so nice when people say that, but I got to say, everyone I know on the on the agency side, especially the analysts, are all like, uh, uh, you know, we did what we could, but wish I had served in uniform. Eight 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 nine hundred three three nine three. That's the phone number if you want to call in and chat. Uh, this book sounds really interesting, by the way. Um, I'm getting a copy asap and uh, going to read through it as quickly as I can. It's going on the Buck Stack, the Buck Stack O Books. Which um, I've been I've I've when I say eliminated, it's not like I throw them out, but I've I've been making my way through it recently. Stacko books. Um, take a break here. We'll be right back. The Buck Sexton Show. Discover more at theblaze.com/slash radio. The Blaze Radio Network. Got a call from Watson in Florida. What's up, Watson? You're on the Buck Sexton Show. How are you doing, Buck? Shields high, buddy. I'm good. I was, uh, yeah, Shields high. Uh, I was calling uh, this Ohio State University shooter. Uh, this makes me wonder that if this will cause any type of push for a type of concealed carry. Uh, I know with Trump coming in, a bunch of the NRA fanatics, you know, hoping, you know, nationwide can still carry you know a reciprocity and all this kind of stuff but but aside from that it, it really Wait, you view that wonder, as a fan, will you view that as a fanatical a fanatical position that conceal carry reciprocity why not well no not to me but i do realize that we're living in a nation where you know hey uh trump got elected but just as many people if not a few more voted for hillary and these people really can't 
even come to grips with the idea of... Ah, uh, so you meant fanatical you know, in, in, in quotes there. I get you. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, no air quotes. Um, but, uh, and I'm not, uh, you know, I'll be honest with you, a lot of the people that, you know, might choose to do this, you know, I, I, I'm not a firm believer in the fact that if everybody was armed, everybody would be safer. Um, but at the same time... Well, as, but as, as you know, as you know, Watson, citizens. that's not, I mean, the argument about concealed carry is not that everybody should have a gun... But, I mean, you, you go back and look at, at John Lott's seminal work, More Guns, uh, Less Crime. It's that the, agreed, the, the, possi- right, the possibility that in any situation a, civil- a law-abiding civilian could be armed has a deterrent effect on crime, particularly on home invasions, but also on mass shootings, on any, on any number of things, right? So it's not that, you know, you, you, don't, need every, you don't need every person in the, in the uh, old Western bar to, to have a six-shooter to stop the bad guy from robbing the bank. You just need one, or at least the possibility of one. That changes the game. Yes, I agree 100%. But you do realize that uh, most of the left, they don't, they can't see it that way. They literally think it's the old West if all of a sudden everyone has a gun. Um, and and I and I realize that. But more specifically, based around college campuses, I, I wonder one of two things. Like one, I don't know that the faculty at these campuses could actually do their jobs. I think they would literally like need a faculty safe space to i think they would start quitting i'm not joking if all of a sudden students were allowed to carry guns which i think i mean my child is 11 by the time he is 18 and going to college he better be able to protect himself otherwise we're going to have a problem i don't care and i expect him to go you know to an ivy league university um, to be 100 percent honest with you um and and i do not at any you know uh point think that he should have to just defer to the luck of the yeah. draw. Ivy League, Ivy League is overrated, by the way, in the sense that, like, Stanford, Duke, these are non-Ivy League schools that are every bit as yeah, no, selective I, and good. I, I'm, I, I'm just saying. I, I like to give the Ivy League I a tough time. One, I, I enjoyed it in my time at one, so therefore... Where'd you go? Come on, everybody wants to know now. You can't just tease us like uh, that. I went to Columbia. Um, oh, and, uh, great school. Great school. I should have. I didn't even apply. I should have applied. I should have stayed in New York for college. Anyway, go ahead. But regardless, um, you know, it was a great experience. Um, if for no other reason to know thine enemy. Um, but, um, you know, it, uh, regardless, the idea of kids carrying guns around, even, I'm not, I don't want to pull Columbia out, but, you know, even just more state schools and, you know, more mainstream academic institutions, I honestly don't think, I, I think you would have a walkout. I think that, that there would be like no professors. And oh, that yeah, no, they would never allow good it. Thing. For ideological but, reasons. But I, at honestly, these... Go ahead. I think that'd be a good thing, though. If I mean, if federally you were allowed to do that, it might be a way to jumpstart the re-education of our educational system. Because I'm going to tell you right now, like these kids don't know what the hell they're doing. They're going to grab a knife and a car and go out and kill some people. That's one thing. But when you start thinking about the fact that you know some infidel might just drop you in your tracks, especially if it's a woman. Well, we're the, we're, we're the infidels to them, by the way. They're I know <laughs> that. That's what I'm saying. And if you thought, if that guy don't have... Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. If you thought all of a sudden, you know, uh, Mitzi there in the uh, the high heels and the miniskirt might pull out a Glock 43 and drop him in his tracks, 
Well, the idea of an honorable death all of a sudden comes into question a little yeah. more clearly than if you think you're just going to go out in a blaze of glory. By the way, again. is is, is Mitzi a real is Mitzi a real person? That was an interesting. <laughs> I, <like this. laughs> I don't know, man. Hey. Yeah, M- Mitzi, who hey. conceal carries, he wears a mini skirt and high heels. Inter- I mean, I'm just saying, it was, it was interesting. Hey. Interesting. Hey, it's uh, got to start somewhere. It's got to start somewhere, baby. Fair enough, man. Watson in Florida, Shield Time, man. Good to talk to you. Thank you for calling Thank in, you, brother. Later. Um, uh, so. I didn't even get. I'm not even going to get a chance to go too deep into this. Maybe we'll talk more about this tomorrow. Get some econ folks in here. Uh, Goldman Sachs says, "Yeah, that Goldman Sachs, the Goldman Sachs that was described in the Rolling in Rolling Stone magazine as a giant squid on the face of the U.S. economy, or, or a giant blood sucking squid on the face of the U.S. economy." Uh, yeah, it's quite a. I think that was Matt Taibbi. Quite a quite a description. Um, not not fair, of course, because I mean all these investment banks are doing largely the same stuff. Uh, Goldman Sachs is saying, this is on Bloomberg.com, that the Trump presidency is going to benefit stocks in almost every sector. Uh, the, the subtitle is MAGA comes to Wall Street. Uh, this is really interesting stuff to me. I mean, we were told that there was going to be that there would be so much catastrophe. First of all, so much of what we were told, so much of the conventional wisdom during the entirety of the campaign in every respect was wrong. Uh, and the and I remember the night of the election when the Dow futures were dropping, and then of course they had the huge rally the next day. Uh, we were told that Hillary would be better for you know business as usual and be better for business. And now, I mean, you've got Goldman Sachs thinking that a Trump presidency is actually going to cause a boom in stocks, a booming market, and we're already at really high stock prices right now uh, historically. So, is it is it possible that Trump is actually going to maga the economy? Goldman Sachs is said, why would Goldman Sachs, by the way, they gave money to, a lot of them gave money to Hillary. Why would they say that now? I'm sure we could get into some reasons, but I do think it's interesting. Worthy of further study, as you might say. Team, an honor to have you with me here in the Freedom Hunt. I'll be back tomorrow, of course, same time as always. Download the podcast, and until then, shields high. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.